0: Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 100. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The title of this episode is my way of saying how much I appreciate all my listeners. When I started this podcast way back in April of 2010, I would have been happy with a couple of thousand listeners and maybe 60 total episodes before I moved on with my life. Yet here I am, in August of 2012, with episode number 100, and still a ways to go, before I transform the podcast to a celebration of Russian history, instead of a following of a list of rulers, some of whom moved their nation forward, many of whom did little to improve the lives of the people. Russian history is like many histories of countries and peoples who have lasted a millennia, complex and multi-sided. There are no clear answers to all the questions, as interpreting history objectively is virtually impossible. You have your personal prejudices, your educational background, and your life's experiences that sometimes cloud, sometimes sharpens your vision of the past. I hope I've given you an objective viewpoint of Russian history, and will try to continue to do so in the future. Now, on to the purpose of this podcast, which is to answer the questions you, my loyal listeners, have sent me in the past few months. Now, the first one I really loved. Uh, this one's from Grant. Uh, why do you think Russia managed to advance its borders so far to the east? It seems Peter and Catherine the Great advanced it west, as you describe, but given that most of the other Russian rulers didn't seem particularly competent, How did they outmaneuver the Chinese, Japanese, and Koreans, etc., to conquer all of Siberia? Well, that's a great question, Grant, and not a simple one to answer, but I'll give you my best guess on the multitude of reasons. First off, the great expansion of Russia was really started by Ivan IV, or Ivan Grozny, and I really dislike calling him Ivan the Terrible as Grozny really has a different meaning in Russia, and it isn't truly terrible in the sense that the English language would have it. So, we'll call him Ivan IV here. Now, Ivan inherited a nation from his father, Vasily III, that had been expanding since the founding of Moscow, which came around 1147, when Yuri Dolgeruki called upon the Prince of Novgorod, Seversky, to, quote, Come to me, brother, to Moscow. The expansion can be said to have initially occurred to the east in a vacuum, the vacuum that was the dissolution of the Mongol horde's hegemony over Russia, beginning with the Battle of Kulikova, led by Dmitry Donskoy, but finished by Ivan III at the Great Stand on the Ugra River in 1480. The Tatar holdings began to dissolve because of many reasons, the biggest being internal fighting. Ivan III, also known as Ivan the Great, began to gather territories held by the hordes. But it was Ivan IV, his grandson, who really accelerated the expansion. By the time of his death, Russia had penetrated all the way to Siberia and would likely have made it to the Pacific in the late 1500s, if not for Ivan's maniacal ways, and subsequently with the time of troubles. Another one is the Stroganov family. Yes, Beef Stroganoff comes from that family name. They were great entrepreneurs, and they were the ones who started opening up those wild areas of Siberia with all the fur trading and the natural resources that were there Now, there are three other reasons why the Mongol invasion was an impetus for Russian expansionism: the first being religion and the need for a peaceful existence far away from their overlords, as seen by St. Sergius of Radonezh, developing his monastery away from the big cities and the forests. And secondly, the people needed to get away from the Mongols, and later the Tatars, because they were constantly being raided upon and sold into slavery. And the third reason is that the Mongol hegemony created a barrier to Europe to the west, so the only expansion could have been eastward. Now, the last reason I will give, and certainly not the last reason overall, there are many other reasons, I'm sure, the lands to the east were more easily accessible to the Russians than they were to the Chinese, and certainly easier than for the Japanese or Koreans. There were political realities in China, which made for a more difficult expansion north, which they would have had to go, as opposed to Russia going east. And another one is the river system of Russia, allowing to go north-south, but it also facilitated the ability to go east in some different ways because they could trade down from, as they went further east, there were river chains that would go down south to where the traders could go, down to Constantinople, uh, to China, and to other regions like that. So it gave for good trade routes. Now, the next question we go to is Jeremy who asked, what would you consider Russia's golden age? He wondered whether there was a happy time, or at least a not-so-negative period in Russian history. Well, this has a two-part answer. The first is simple. If you were a peasant in Russia, there was no golden age, as the suffering of the landed peasant was never an easy life. And it was always great suffering, and it was for the most part a pretty horrible existence with a little joy, and not much happiness. Now, the second part—that of the aristocracy—that took a while for me to figure out. When would have been the best time? And I would have to say the time of Catherine the Great, and that was their golden age. Russia was a burgeoning power. Things were relatively peaceful. We, you know, did have some problems, but compared to other periods of the country's history, and, and wealth abounded at least for the rich boyars. Uh, Art and architecture were showing off Russia's greatness. We have the building of such beautiful things, you know, the palaces of Catherine. You know, before, of course, Elizabeth had done some, too. But Catherine really took it to its zenith. And yes, there were problems with the revolt of Stenka Razin and palace intrigues with the murder of Peter III and the poor relationship between Catherine and her son, the future Paul. But I have to say, in my humble opinion, that this was the golden age of Russian history. And now from Greg. This one we're going to devote an entire podcast to eventually. He asked, what was life like for the average person? Did they have a weekend? How long was their work day? What could they do with their time off? How much social mobility did they have? And how could someone like his grandfather go from being a farmer to an engineer. Well, as I said before, life for the average person was really miserable, especially for a serf who was, for all intents and purposes, a slave to the land and to the people who owned the land. Their everyday life was one of toiling on what for the most part was a pretty poor piece of farmland. You know, the Ukraine has a really good rich base for farming, but much of Russia does not. Their working hours were really based on the amount of daylight, and they worked communally with other peasants. But now all was bad for some of the people, as they were allowed to engage in trades away from the farms when farming was impossible, say, due to weather, the winter. Some were able to buy their freedom if they were serfs, and a few even became millionaires, believe it or not. Some, like your grandfather, were able to leave the farms during these periods, or during these times off, and could, if able, become more than a farmer, but this was really the exception rather than the rule. As for their time off, it was usually only on Sundays, due to religious reasons, obviously going to the Russian Orthodox Church. But they could get more time off during the off-season as well. All in all, life in Russia was, for the typical peasant, Not a pleasant one, but one of hardships and a few glimmers of happiness. And to really appreciate the percentage of people living like this, even after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, a full 25% of the population of Russia was still living as rural peasants. Now, here's something you didn't ask about, but wanted to add a little bit, and we'll do more when we get into that podcast after Putin. Things like food was an important feature of peasant life, obviously. The everyday food was bread and potatoes. Now, the vegetables included cabbage, carrots, and beets, along with a lot of onions and garlic. As for meat, average Russian loved it. And believe it or not, it was readily available, especially sausage, that was a big thing, and different types of uh, dried or salted fish. Of course, there were many famines, as there were in other parts of the world, and oftentimes harvests were meek due to weather. But on the whole, food was readily available for most people. And as I said, I'm going to do a whole podcast and maybe a series of podcasts on a day in the life of a peasant and of a nobleman in different time periods. Now for my next question, which is from Shane. When people talked about being Russian in the 18th or 19th century, what did they actually mean? Wow. Nice question. Uh, Being a Russian during that time did not mean that you were fully Russian. Uh, There were over a hundred different ethnic nationalities within the Russian state, many of whom were russified, but many kept parts of their heritage and traditions. Defining what a Russian really is, is a difficult one, with discussions being taken up by academicians, philosophers, artists, writers, and really everyday people for hundreds of years with no real clear-cut answer. The uniqueness of the Russian peoples from the East, West, and in the middle makes them so different from any other peoples in the world. Anyone really who lived there can be truly considered a Russian within these geographical confines of the vast countryside. I think it's also something, going back to the question on expansion, it's what made Russia have an ability to expand so easily because they accepted everybody into the family of Russia. You could be, you know, Siberian, you could be, you know, from the Caucasus, you could have been from anywhere, and they would have accepted you as a Russian. Now, yes, there was the Slavophiles, which happened in the... uh, Reigns of, say, from Nicholas I and through Nicholas II, where, you know, there was ethnic purity, but as a whole, the Russian people didn't feel that. You know, yeah, they had some prejudices because of things like the pogroms against the Jews, but I really don't think that as a whole, the soul of the real Russian people was anything but somebody who accepted all into the family of Russia. Now, from Johann, how did the czars control such a large empire in the 17th and 18th century without telegraph, telephones and trains and were there roads like the Romans had in their empire? Well, first off, the roads were not very good. Um, much of what their travel was done on the, uh, the rivers. The river systems amazing, you know, the Don, the Dnieper, the Moscow, the, you know, all of them, the Volga, of course. I mean, that was where they were able to do this, but the control, if you'd like to call it that, was done through their bureaucratic system, much like the Soviets' Apparat and Nomenklatura. But the system was an immense one and was, I mean, very inefficient. Bribery and corruption were rampant throughout the entire country and just grew as its boundaries expanded. Now, the, they could lay down laws, the Tsars, as many did. You know, Peter did his reforms, Catherine did, and then the anti-reforms by Paul I, and... You know, changes by Alexander first, and then, of course, the second when he, you know, supposedly freed the slaves, which wasn't a complete freedom. But it was carried out, all this control by these bureaucrats. And that's why when you do something like this, it's just the corruption is just amazing. And you couldn't get anything done without, you know, handing a bottle of vodka off to, and I'm not kidding, handing a bottle of vodka off to, someone. And I'll answer this, you know, the vodka issue and a, the a question here, but yeah, you had to do it that way. It was the only way to really get anything done. So there was written rules coming from Moscow or St. Petersburg carried out by this large uh, bureaucratic system. Now, the next question is from a fellow history podcaster. And that's Jamie from the History of Hannibal, which I highly recommend. If you're interested in history, Jamie does a fine job, you know, a really excellent job on, you know, just talking about this amazing person in history. And he asked, how did Russia become such an industrial giant in such a short time, and was communism necessary for such transformations? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Russia's transformation was done by force, by Stalin. Yes, there were industrial forces going on under Alexander III, Nicholas II, but as was seen by their poor showing in World War II, it wasn't a strong force for change. Stalin, in his mind, knew that in order for the Soviet state to compete in the world, they needed to industrialize, especially with the German threat growing to the West. They knew it. I mean... They were not burying their head in the sand. They knew the militarism uh, was going on in, you know, Nazi Germany when Stalin came. I mean, not Stalin. Hitler came into power in the early '30s. So what Stalin had to do is he saw this peasant background of Russia. I mean, it was just huge. It was half the population were living on farms, if not more. And so what he did is he brutally, yet effectively, created an industrial giant with more focus on military needs than consumer ones. Obviously. I mean, this was not a communist phenomenon. Look at Germany and Japan, who became industrialized quite rapidly. So I think it was more of an authoritarian one. Now, while America quickly industrialized, it was due to market forces, as well as massive immigration that gave it its ability. Now from Antonio, What can we consider the greatest external threat ever to the continuity of Russia as an independent nation? Was it the German invasion of World War II? While the German invasion of Russia is up there, I really don't think it comes close to being the biggest threat to the continuity of Russia as an independent country. My selection as the number one threat was the Time of Troubles. Now, the end of the Rurik dynastic line after Tsar Fyodor I's death opened the way for Boris Gudenov to take over, precipitating the problems that were to impose themselves on the Russian people. Now, understand that Tsar Gudinov was not the cause of the troubles. But he wasn't an innocent bystander either. What befell the Russian people was a series of events, and it started off with a famine of epic proportion, which was estimated to have killed up to one-third the population. That, and there was an issue with the high tax burden imposed on the people because of the maniacal Ivan IV's military policies, especially the failed Livonian Wars of 1555 to 1583. The economy was incredibly weakened, as was the country as a whole, so when the first false Dmitri invaded with just a handful of troops, they were able to take over quite quickly and almost bloodlessly. I mean, Russian soldiers were there, they were fighting, there was armies going back and forth, and this is considered the first real Russian civil war. I mean, there was those civil wars that you, you know between the principalities back in Kievan Rus, but this is really the first true Russian civil war. Now, the problem that happened here is that Russian soldiers were defecting to the side of Dmitry, uh, which further weakened Zargunov until he died in April of 1605. And by June twentieth, Dmitri entered Moscow. And this is when I believe that Russia was in dire straits. Had the Poles, Lithuanians, and remnants of the Mongol horde, which were the many Tatar elements still in the country, now, if they had decided to attack, I think Russia would have been carved up. While the Poles occupied Moscow and had control of the western part of Russia, they did not do it as wholeheartedly as they should have in hindsight. And this played into the hands of the Russian people. Now, the patriotic movement began in late 1611, and it began to turn the tide against the invaders. And within two years, the Russians crowned Michael Romanov as their new czar, which helped begin the recovery. And I really think it was a very tenuous time. I really think that Russia could have completely collapsed and just become a small remnant of what it is today. Now. The other two times where there were serious threats were Napoleon, of course, and the Nazi invasion of Russia. Now, both had the potential to destroy the country and change its history, but I think the prudent burn-and-retreat policies used by Alexander I and Stalin precluded either of the two invasions to really have an ability to destroy Russia. Uh, Let's face it, both of them had severe problems with uh, getting supplies in. I mean, the lines were so stretched. Napoleon's was, you know, Hitler's was, and they could have gone further back and stretched it even further. So there was a limit as to how far they could have gone. And, you know, we, we knew that they had a huge back to go, so you know, the East was vastly you know, bigger and, and could have gone on quite a ways. so I don't think they would have uh, been able to do this. Uh, I also do not believe that the Mongol invasion would have done it either. Because while the Mongols did devastate the countryside and pretty much killed everybody in any city that wouldn't fall under its control, they didn't want to kill everyone as you know, that wouldn't have been economically prudent as they needed the revenue from a pacified subject base, not a dead one Now Charles the invasion also had the potential to inflict grave harm on Russia, but the fact remains that while Sweden was a great power at the time, I don't think it could have taken over Russia or done any real serious land grab, as it just didn't have enough people and resources to match Russia, especially with Peter the Great at its helm. Now this next question is one that's bound to be a little bit controversial. Uh, This is from, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, Atitya. It's A-D-I-T-Y-A. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. But, he says, there's a lot of misinformation on the Jewish role in Bolshevism and the Soviet state. And do I have any comments? You know, this is a difficult question to answer, uh, but I think it's one that you know does deserve some. Yes, there was a very high proportion of Jewish people in the Bolshevik Revolution and the Bolshevik Party. Uh, Let's not, you know, kind of gloss over that. There were. I mean, Leon Trotsky was. There were a number of them. But was it a Jewish conspiracy? I think absolutely not. There was no question to me that that is not the case. Yes, there were a lot of them in there. And were they pissed off at the, you know, excuse the term, but were they pissed off at the czars? Of course they were. They should have been. I mean, look at the pogroms in the 1880s, you know, the inability to live outside anywhere but the pale of settlement. Uh, There was a lot of prejudice uh, against Jews. Uh, I, I know that for a fact coming from my family and listening to them, you know, and some of their friends who were Russian, you know, Russian Orthodox, and I'm not blaming the church, but the church did allow for it. They did, you know, turn the other cheek, so to say, or the other eye when, uh, you know, Jews were being harmed, or being uh, you know not allowed to do certain things. I mean, this is goes without saying. But was it a vast conspiracy of the Jewish people? I, I don't see that because look at who wasn't uh, a Jew. We have Lenin and Stalin, and look at Khrushchev and his you know very anti-Jewish uh, way of thinking. Brezhnev as well. I mean, there was a lot of non-Jews in very high positions you know, yeah, we could start naming people, uh, you know, who were Jewish that were part of, but then we can also name so many who weren't. Uh, Look at the persecution of the Jews by Stalin, and understand that one of the reasons Stalin became who he was and had the power he had is because Lenin purposely put him into that position because of this opposition to Jewish people headed by the other side, you know, Leon Trotsky. So there was a balancing act going here, so you can't say that one religion or another, or one group of peoples versus another, were involved here. So I think there was a role. I don't think it's a conspiratorial role. I do not think that you know there's anything nefarious going on here. I just think it was just a bunch of people who were flatly outraged by the way the czar and his syst- you know system ran, uh, whether correct or not. There was a lot of social uh, upheaval going on, and I don't think it was any one group. Of people. Now, the next one is from Jim. Was there a point with the post Peter the Great Tsarist system that the Romanovs could have avoided their fate? Would taking Nicholas II out of the picture, say, with a successful assassination attempt in Ostu in 1891, making Michael Tsar, have done the trick? Again, you know, this is a conjecture question, but I think it's a good one. Uh, No, I don't think there was a point that would have saved the Romanovs in the long run. I mean, there is a point where it would have likely averted the Bolshevik Revolution and may have given the Romanovs a few more years or maybe decades. And that was Paul I's ascension to the throne. Now, Paul's hysterical need to reverse all things Catherine and changing the way the title of Tsar was handed from generation to generation was, in my opinion, the beginning of the end for the Romanovs, as it set in motion a system that would eventually lead to weak or poor leadership, as seen by the reigns of Nicholas I, Alexander III, and finally Nicholas II. Now, had Catherine declared Alexander next in line, that's the future Alexander I, the effect would have been dramatic, I believe, probably making Russia a better place and likely to have made it a stronger power and more enlightened. I do think that this, you know, as I said in my podcasts on Paul, I think this was the beginning of the end of the Romanovs. It didn't say that the strongest person would become czar. First, no woman could, after his, you know, he just so despised his mother that there was no way a woman was going to get there, even if she was the most able-bodied. No, there was a rule now, and that rule could not be broken it had to go to the eldest son and that sometimes as we see with nicholas the first and the second was not so good in alexander the third as he wasn't really the first choice and he hadn't even been trained to be tsar because that was going to his older brother which was nicholas would have been uh, the real nicholas the but he died at you know 21 due to disease and so then they had to rush and train alexander well he never was you know, truly trained right and he just was reactionary. And I also believe that Michael, Nicholas the second's brother, was really ill equipped to be Tsar, and for the same reasons. He wasn't really trained for it. And he lacked a strength of character, as did many of the last Romanovs. I mean, they were just a gilded age group that didn't really understand what was going on with the people anymore. You know, they were so isolated, and I think that, you know, the advisors gave them bad advice as they were very isolated from what really the problems of the country were. And let's face it, the world was changing, and autocratic monarchies were quickly becoming a thing of the past. So eventually, they would have been at least forced to become a constitutional monarchy, much in the same vein as Great Britain became. Now, another thing is, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of one other issue. If Alexander II had not been assassinated, he was about to put in a constitutional monarchy. Now, if that worked, it might have. You know, just thinking about it, it might have. And the Romanovs would have been, you know, just heads of state, kind of like uh, Queen Elizabeth II is in uh, Great Britain. So maybe the answer at the end is yes and no. You know, the assassination of Alexander II upon deep thought, may have been the thing that, had it not happened, would have saved the Romanovs, and they would still be, you know, like the Queen of uh, England. So that's, you know, the answer there. Now, next one's from David. Just how much control did Khrushchev have over the country as opposed to Lenin and Stalin, who would have shot you in a cabinet meeting if need be? You know, there was a different air after Stalin's death. They they just didn't want that. Aside from taking Lavrentiy Beria out, which they had to do, the man was just, you know, evil uh, and had a lot of the goods on, you know, the Politburo leaders. Uh, Khrushchev did have, once he gained power, he was, you know, up there. He had everybody running scared because he could take you out. I mean, look what he did to the anti-party gang with Molotov and, uh, you know, his own mentor. Uh, there, you know, Lazar Kaganovich. So you can see that there were, you know, they were frightened afterwards. He got rid of those very powerful men, and so he was in control. It's just when he started, and you'll hear this in the next episode, number 101 and possibly into number 102, about Khrushchev's, you know, erratic behavior, and that's what really led to his downfall. But before then, before the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev was in control. Uh, Nobody, everybody was a yes man to him. Uh, They didn't want to be on his bad side because he could get into a rage and, you know, eventually get rid of you. I mean, you're not going to be shot, but you'd lose all those nice little uh, benefits of being in in power. So he was pretty strong. here's one I loved that I mentioned a little while ago from Antonio. Has drinking vodka always played an important social role in Russian history? Now from the time that vodka was introduced into Russia and that time when it came in is in debate you know it could it come from the venetians and it could have come from the germans the lithuanians have been thought you know but there's a lot of different ideas i'm going to go with the venetians though uh, but yes vodka has played a very important part in russian history as vodka was initially only drunk by the wealthier russians as the peasants could really only afford mead or ale and beer it had less ceremonial use than it did later, towards the 19th century, where it became more readily available and became an intricate part of all peasant celebrations, such as church festivals, rites of passage, family celebrations, weddings, and funerals. And it was not only important on special occasions, it became a necessary conclusion to any deal, like in a business negotiations. Now, today's Russia... He sees this as a way of life throughout the country. And amazingly, when I was doing the research for this question, the most likely place for a Russian to imbibe in vodka is at work. It was estimated through a survey in 1993 that the average Russian adult male consumes one bottle of vodka every two days. You know, some people thought that the drink was kind of what made the hardships of Russian life more tolerable, According to a lot of experts, uh, when they would close different types of business deals, as I mentioned before, they would have these ceremonies of drinking shots of vodka. And I can tell you of an incident with uh, me when I was growing up, you know, when I uh, became uh, of age to be able to drink. uh, After a Russian Orthodox Easter, which again, I've mentioned this in the past, you have to go to see uh, the celebration, which usually starts around 11 o'clock at night can run quite late, and the longest I've ever been to is one that ended at 5 in the morning. But afterwards, there's kind of a celebration of the rebirth of Christ and his resurrection. And I was sitting there with, I'd say, about six or seven uh, men in their 70s and 80s. And they would pour in these little shot glasses vodka. I mean, just pour it, and it was spilling over onto the table. And they would have me come in. They said, Mark, come here, come here, sit down. You have to go through this tradition with us. And they would pound shots of vodka. It got to the point, after about five or six of these, I was pretty inebriated. I was drunk. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a kind of a comical scene. But these guys were like, you can't leave. You have to have more. Come on. You know, you're not a real Russian until you have eight or ten of these or a dozen. So it really was something very, you know, part of their culture, their their soul, Uh, It is also why alcoholism is a really big problem in Russia. As you know, with the, the statistic of, you know, a bottle of vodka every two days, that's pretty rough. But it is something really embedded into the Russian psyche. And my next question is from Justin. And the question is, what was Stalin's relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church? As you remember or you may remember from my podcast on Stalin's early life. He had spent many years in a seminary being ostensibly trained for the Russian Orthodox priesthood when he came across radical material, which caused him to either get thrown out or made him leave the church's school. Now, I don't believe that he was ever really priestly material, given his fighting and his little man syndrome, but I don't think he completely rid himself of his religious upbringing. But having said that, this man was anything but a Christian, having led millions to slaughter. I mean, he did use the church to his advantage when he needed it, especially to rally the people during World War II. Now, as with everything in his life, everyone was his to manipulate, and he did that with the Russian Orthodox Church. So to answer your question, Justin, when he became Stalin, his only relationship with the church was to use it to hold on to and increases power. Nothing more. Now from Lizzie, and I guess she had a little debate with her husband. And the question was, was there a secret police before the communists came to power? Well, to her, she was right. Absolutely, there was. The first one really was under Ivan the IV, Fourth, and we have the Oprachniki. Under the second Romanov czar, Alexei, we have the Tanya Prikaz, or the secret department, who were informants spread throughout the cities. Peter the Great created the Priobrazhinskaya department, much like the secret department. Catherine Great had the secret expedition, led by the brutal Stepan Krzyszowski. Now, subsequent czars all had secret police, like Alexander I's secret chancellery. Nicholas I created the first real modern secret police force after the Decemberist uprising and it was known as the infamous Third Section. Now, After Alexander the 2nd was assassinated, the secret police became known as the Okhrana and its size jumped exponentially. They had numerous informers with one likely being one Joseph Jugashvili or Stalin. Now from Ken This is the one question I really couldn't answer, Uh, and it's, do you have any thoughts about Russia helping President Lincoln during the American Civil War? Well, Ken, I've been really unable to find a lot about this. I did find some brief little things here and there, but nothing substantial enough and, you know, up to my quality standards. But if any of my listeners do have that, uh, please share it with me. You know, come to our Facebook group, which is, you know, growing pretty well. You know, at Russian Rulers History Podcast, just ask to, you know, to join. Uh, Or go to, you know, RussianRulers.PodHoster.com and, you know, post up an answer and tell me where I can find the information. And if so, I will turn it, in turn, put it into one of my future podcasts and uh, give you credit for it. Now from Caleb, can you comment on the Soviet opinion of the Marshall Plan after World War II? When you have the Soviet opinion, we have to think it's Joseph Stalin's opinion here, because uh, nobody else has really mattered. And I think the big thing with Stalin is he was very annoyed with it. Uh, you know, he was trying to really control Eastern Europe and control Berlin, uh, and he wanted to show that socialism and communism in particular was the way that was going to be better. And the Marshall Plan really put a kink in his uh, ideas and his beliefs, and and really, you know, he had a problem with it, because uh, he couldn't fight it. The Marshall Plan helped accelerate the rebirth of Germany and Western Europe that really wasn't happening in Eastern uh, Europe. Uh, An incident, again, in my lifetime, uh, I went to Germany in 1970. I was 12 years old. And was there for six weeks, uh, visiting with relatives and uh, going to places. Uh, we started in in Berlin of all places, where my grandfather, who was a world-renowned uh, violinist uh, back in the uh, early days, you know, was even actually offered the uh, head of the uh, to become the conductor for the Moscow Philharmonic Orchestra. And I think it was 1912 or, or so. And he, uh, you know, his mother very wisely said, "Don't go to Russia." Something bad is going to happen there, and you don't need to be there. Uh, So, you know, we were there, and what struck me is we went to East Berlin, because I had some relatives in East Germany, and one was a nuclear uh, physicist. And, you know, we went over. We had got clearance to get over there. Uh, Of course, he surprisingly couldn't make it to our dinner because a meeting came up. And we were followed by KGB, you know, or whatever the uh, secret police were for the – Uh, the East Germans' uh, government. Uh, And we looked around East Berlin, and what was striking, my dad used the word tryst. Really sad-looking town. It was dark. It was gray. I mean, in a soul. And there were bullet holes that you could still see in the walls of a lot of the buildings that they had never fixed after World War II. Uh, We saw a line of people uh, waiting for something, and they didn't even know what it was for when we asked them until we got to the end and found out it was toilet paper. You know, it was just a sad state of affairs in that country, and I think the Marshall Plan, and and looking at Germany in 1970, West Germany, it was so much more vibrant and alive, and I think that really disturbed the Soviets. They did not like what happened, even though, you know, they tried to do it, but they just didn't have the resources like the United States did. Now, the next question is from Jamie G., I asked, uh, "Can you comment on why the Americans had such a hatred of communism during the nineteen twenties and beyond?" Well, it's, it should be kind of obvious here in the United States. It was a threat, communism and socialism. I mean, you can look at it right now with the, the campaigns between Romney and Obama. I mean, the, the special interest groups are throwing out things like, you know, Obama's a socialist. Come on. You know, it's ridiculous. If you, if you know enough about the socialist ideals, it's, it's not. I mean, it's the social ideas that he has, but not socialist and certainly not communist. But the people in power, I mean, the capitalists viewed this as a serious threat to America. And there was a growing movement among, you know, intellectuals in the United States and especially in Hollywood where they thought, well, communism sounds great. Everybody's going to be able to be equal. We're going to have a great time. And I think it was this idealism that drew a lot of people into communism, especially in the United States, but also because if you're a capitalist and a business owner and you hear about what Stalin was doing or Lenin, you know, and the murders of so many people in their civil war and everything, there was this real concern that if it came to the United States, that similar things would happen and there would be a breakdown in society. So there was a really a growing hatred, which kind of culminated, you know, with, uh, you know, the witch hunts by McCarthy in the fifties and you know, just the Cold War as general, so that's what I think. There was there was a hatred based on fear. Now, the next one is Fiona wanted me to say something about the Blood in the Water incident between Hungary and the USSR at the nineteen fifty six Summer Olympics. So looking into this, the Blood in the Water incident was a water polo match between Hungary and the Soviet Union at the 1956 Melbourne Olympics Now the match which took place on December 6, 1956 was against the background of the 1956 Hungarian Revolution which was squashed by Khrushchev And in this game Hungary defeated the Soviets 4 to nothing And the name was came was come up with after Hungarian player Ervin Zador emerged after about two two minutes to go in the game with blood pouring from under his eye after being punched by one of the Soviet uh, players, Valentin Prokopov. So this was a big incident, and it was really carried, and it was very embarrassing to the Russians. Kind of gave a rallying point to Hungarians and the anti soviets throughout the world. Now, this one is from someone whose name I really didn't get down, and I can't find my notes on it. Please forgive me. You know, come out and, uh, you know, on Facebook and say it was me, and I'll give you credit for it. This was a fascinating one. What kind of money was used by the Russians before the ruble? Now, one of the earliest known uses of currency was in the 9th or 10th centuries, and the monetary unit used was the grivna which was made of silver, and it was a long, slender bar with notches in it. So it could be broken up to make trades based on price. Now, appearing at the same time around the 14th century were two other monetary units, dzenge or zingi, and altin. And both words come from the Mongols. And six Zengi equaled one altin. And from here we have the Kopek, which is based on a Lithuanian model. Now Peter the Great during his monetary reform period made the kopeck out of copper where its value was deemed to be 100 kopecks per to a ruble. Now over the years the czars kept on tampering with the values of the ruble which to this day is the standard in Russia. And the term ruble comes from the word rubit or to cut as the silver bars had notches like the grivna to be cut into smaller pieces and finally the last question was from alexis and i love this one he asked about the origin of the name of molotov cocktail for those of you who may not know what a molotov cocktail is it's a typically gasoline stuffed into a bottle with a rag coming out of it that's been soaked as well it's lit and thrown and it can have some pretty nasty you know a destructive force you can imagine from gasoline would just ignite that whole area well the name Molotov cocktail was coined by the Finnish people during the Winter War in early 1940 as an insult to Vacheslav Molotov. I mean, they were short on some military supplies, so the Finns decided to make an easy to generate uh, incendiary device to use against Soviet tanks. And so they would be said to throw Molotov cocktails at the Soviet army when they were invading and uh, were trying to take territory. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast as much as I did in researching the questions. To have all of you listeners, and and as I said before, we've gone over a million downloads of the podcast. I mean, this just shows such an enthusiasm for Russian history, and it really warms my heart and makes me hope that my mother, all my Russian ancestors, and my Russian history professor, the late Dr. Paul Average, that they're looking down at me with a smile as I continue to spread my love for the subject of Russian history. And this may go on for many years, hopefully. Well, again, join us at the Russian Rulers History Podcast group where you can ask questions, and there's a lot of good debates going on there, questions being put out there, answers coming, because we've got some incredible people that listen to this podcast. We have professors from universities around the world, students of Russian history, and I've had a couple of them tell me they got A's because of my podcast, which makes me really proud that I was able to do that, and some good discussions there. So please join us there, and as always, До и спасибо